0: I'm Katrina Daniel, this is Primetime Crime. The chokehold death of George Floyd barely a year ago has opened a floodgate of feelings and opinions worldwide. The murder trial of Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer accused of killing George Floyd, is sure to be riveting. So we're bringing you regular updates with one of the top federal prosecutors in the country, Richard Gregory. Dick was responsible for prosecuting a who's who list of the world's biggest criminals, including drug kingpins, like Pablo Escobar and dictator drug smuggling enabler Manuel Noriega. Dick will have amazing insights, and you'll hear those on Primetime Crime, the podcast. This is Primetime Crime, I'm Katrina Daniel. We're closely watching the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin and the very public killing of George Floyd. And it's been a highly emotional week so far, with almost every witness called by the prosecution breaking down and crying during their testimony. These were the bystanders who took all the videos of the incident, which has provided invaluable evidence of the actions of all the police officers in the case, but especially Derek Chauvin's actions as he knelt on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes. I have two top legal analysts. For the prosecution, it's Dick Gregory, a veteran of many, many such high-profile trials. For the defense, attorney Michael Rosen, who is also my husband. So you can imagine what our conversations are like as I watch this trial. It's riveting. My guests today are two legal experts with combined probably 50, 60 years of experience, if not more. Each. (laughs) (laughs) Prosecutor Dick Gregory and criminal defense attorney Michael Rosen, who in the interest of full disclosure is also my husband. So you can imagine our evening conversations, none of that mushy stuff. It's (laughs) like, can you believe what they did in the Derek Chauvin trial today? So Dick, can I start with you? there are a lot of prosecutors in this case. At one point in time, even the state's African-American attorney general was going to be the lead in this case. Why so many prosecutors?
1: Well, I think that there were probably a lot of prosecutors when the case was originally investigated and everybody wanted to remain on the case. Uh, To be quite frank with you, having been in cases like this where there are are a a large number of prosecutors. That's not really a benefit to the prosecution. They really should have narrowed the team down to to three at most. And I would say it's a mistake. Of course, they had various prosecutors doing various uh, pieces of the investigation, so they wanted to stay on it. And it it is very hard to tell people, I'm sorry, you're not going to be allowed in the courtroom, because that's where uh, the ultimate goal is. But to have more than three at the prosecution table, I think is an error.
2: Michael. Well, all right, so first of all, before I, I respond to that, and, and Dick, I've experienced that exact same thing, where uh, egos and lack of supervisory control got in the way of, of sound you know, prosecution decisions. As a criminal defense attorney, we are often described as liberty's last champion. And in this case, I'm sure a lot of people are asking why would a lawyer take on such an unpopular uh, or unsympathetic case, and I just want to say at the outset that that we who do this understand that that number one, everyone is entitled to a defense, and if you start stripping who's entitled to a defense, where does it end? And second, we don't judge the morality or the ethics or the legality of what our clients are doing. That's for jurors and the public. So. It's a hard job to take on a case like this that is so unpopular, but I always have to honor and respect the defense lawyer who's doing it just because it is an unpopular case to take. So I wanted to sort of put that out there. To your question, Katrina, um, I 100% agree with Dick. I've had a case where I've had four prosecutors, and it was as if each had not spoken to the other about their their trial prep, where they were going, and what we were able successfully to do was to play one against the other. One witnesses uh, by a by one prosecutor called against another witness by another prosecutor. So um, I think this was ego. This was getting our uh, you know a reputation out on the the world scene of of a prosecutor. And somebody should have been strong enough, in my opinion. I agree with you, Dick. Three would have been the right number.
0: All right, Dick, I'm going to ask you what sounds like a sexist question. There was a female prosecutor yesterday. I believe her first name is Erin. Um, she was tasked with the questioning the minors or the kids that were bystanders at the time and were under age 18. Was that done because they thought that they would get a gentler, kinder prosecution question?
1: I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Um, uh, I do think it is good to mix the prosecutors. As I say, if you were going to have three and and you you would leave one female uh, on there, I think that would be a smart thing to do. I don't know why they chose a female to interview the witnesses. Maybe she has a more motherly effect on kids. That's a possibility. I don't mean to sound sexist, but sometimes different prosecutors uh, react better with different witnesses, and that may have been the choice there.
0: Well, that's optics also. So to the jury, it looks like, oh, gee, the poor defense, you know, there's only that one guy and and poor little Derek Chauvin is sitting there in his suit and his mask. How would you ask your client to behave? What would you tell him to act like in court?
2: Well, the jury is always looking at at the defendant, always. Uh, They're looking at the defendant in terms of his, his reaction to what a witness is saying. And every time Dick stands up to ask a question or I do, We know that the jury is assessing us. And so, for the defendant to endure the emotional testimony that came out yesterday, uh, you have to remain neutral or sympathetic. But you, you can't get that look on your face, that scowl, or that, I can't believe they're saying this about me. It's a tough task because you're fighting human nature. But to the degree possible, you have to remind your client at all times they're watching you. So, how you react, in in keeping that neutral look on your face or at least some degree of sympathy to what you're watching is the approach I would take.
1: I I may add the most significant choice that's ever made in any trial is whether a defendant is going to testify. And in this particular case, the defendant is a police officer. It's not like he's a, a street drug dealer or a bank robber or an extortionist. He's a police officer. And so it will change higher view of this trial if he made the decision to testify. And I'm sure this is something that counsel and the defendant have talked about. And uh, so his appearance thus far has been he's sitting at the table. When asked to stand up to be identified, he's had no problem. He, he, he's on tape. Nobody questions that it's him. If he's a police officer, he's probably been in court and testified a lot of times. And so uh, this would be a very difficult question. And I would tell you that in any case, if the defendant testifies, it turns the case around entirely. Then it's a matter of does the jury believe it or not.
0: So if you were the prosecutor in this case and you learned that Derek Chauvin was going to testify, would you like rub your hands with glee and say, I cannot wait?
1: As a prosecutor, I would get to work preparing cross-examination with every possible uh, document and, and exhibit that I could possibly find. And I would hope that the prosecutors in this case have done everything uh, preparation-wise to be prepared that he will testify, even if that is not what happens.
2: Imagine the arm wrestling over who gets to, to cross-examine him. You got 12 prosecutors, and each one wants yeah. their moment on on the, on the spotlight, right?
1: I would, I would tell you that it would probably be the, uh, uh, the prime job in this case. And I'm sure that, that they would be fighting over who's going to do it. But, uh, I would think by now that there would be somebody. Very experienced.
2: Dick, let me ask you a question. Don't you prepare every trial and don't you have to prepare every trial as if the defendant is going to testify?
1: Absolutely. And, and any prosecutor who doesn't is, is making a, a very big mistake. Uh, Uh, But as I say, you know, you have to get to be fully prepared for it, have files ready to go, uh, cross-examination ready to go. But in in a case like this, as I say, uh, anytime the defendant testifies, it turns the case around, and it's a matter of whether or not the jury believes the defendant. And so it's a very difficult choice of the defendant, but it makes a very big difference in any trial.
0: Why do the prosecutors front-load the trial with all the emotional testimony from all the underage and the other bystanders who shot the very damaging videos.
1: Well, I, I think that uh, this was the, the way to go. They have uh, uh, already had this jury, uh, 99% convicting this defendant. And uh, for the defense now to win this case, they're going to have to turn this jury around. I mean, from the testimony that you've heard thus far, probably the most uh, important witness thus far is a little nine-year-old girl. Uh, You know, a child of that age is not going to lie to you. She's up there telling you what she saw and heard, and it really didn't matter how much she said. It mattered that her reaction to it and the very fact that she was there and watched this man die. That was very effective. Now, I will tell you that they trying to head off some of the defense by putting up witnesses who are helpful to the defendant. And I understand why they're doing that. But uh, they've got to be uh, ready to put up one or two more witnesses, I I would hope, who would be more like that nine-year-old when they sit down to rest their case.
0: Okay. So for closing arguments, would you bring that nine-year-old back on the stand?
1: Oh no! I don't think they'll ever bring her back on the stand. I think uh, she's done everything that she was there to do, and and uh, uh, they have taken over the empathy of the. They have now succeeded. The prosecution has succeeded in doing that. Uh, the question is now whether the uh, anything the defense does or what the defense puts up there, whether that uh, turns this argument around. You
2: know, one one of the things I wanted to say at the outset is this. People for in this case particularly, Derek Chauvin doesn't have to prove he's innocent. Derek Chauvin doesn't have to prove he didn't do it. All Derek Chauvin has to do is raise a reason to doubt charges against him. And that defense lawyer needed to and should always be reminding the jury of that fact. Mm-hmm. So to Dick's point earlier about the medical, if the defense can continue to raise a tune, a song, a, a, a theme, such as, no matter what it is that you see and what you saw, no matter how emotional, and I will agree with you ladies and gentlemen, that was traumatic to those people on the, on, on the eyewitnesses. I don't think the lawyer played a smart card by challenging the, the eyewitnesses as being you know, aggressive to the point that it affected what Chauvin was doing. I think that the visual, disregards that argument.
0: Yeah, uh, Eric Nelson, the defense attorney, was playing the rowdy crowd that was threatening the police card. There were like, what, 10 people there in all the video that I've seen.
2: You have to be credible when you make arguments. And in this case, let's not kid ourselves. This case, I mean, look, this is a very tough case. And we all, all defense lawyers have to live with the fact that sometimes you ain't got much, but you work with what you have. So, in this case, if the theme is the drugs, the ingestion, the medical condition of Mr. Floyd, all they need to do is raise that as a reason to doubt the charges that Chauvin killed this man. Maybe he didn't. Maybe the drugs did. Did he do something to to assist in that death? Well, that's going to be the argument. So that's one point I wanted to make. The other point I wanted to make is this that video, in this case. It isn't the 800-pound gorilla. It's King Kong and Godzilla combined. I mean, it it is the the, the worst possible evidence that you could be facing the length of time, the extent of just the nonstop video. So how, how do you confront that? I think you confront it head on. I think you absolutely stand in front of the jury and say, I know what you're going to see, and it's not pretty. I know how it's going to make you feel. And it's not going to feel good. And I know that you're going to hear witnesses that are going to cry if you start to embrace that as the defense attorney and not run from it, and then sort of make it your own and say, but with all of that, there are still reasons here that you may need to to consider to doubt the government's charges. That I haven't seen. And I, I mean, I see the defense lawyer running from that stuff and not really embracing it. For me. I would have embraced it and made it mine as much as I could and say, "Look, I, I, I own that video. But there's a lot more here that goes past that and goes into that, and that's what you have to be looking at.
0: Dick, you had some comments about the defense uh, procedures? Well I, I, from a
1: from a lawyer's point of view, and I realize now we're we're talking to a lawsuit class, it is very unusual that a judge will allow you to play evidence in your opening <laughs> statement. So the first thing I said, you have to Dick- believe that that was, that was argued outside the presence of the jury, something we didn't see on television. Right. But, but I can tell you that that um, it's very unusual that the judge will allow you to do something as he did here. The question now is, and I said it earlier to you in one of our earlier recordings, but I, I will tell it to you again. The prosecution has done a very good job of putting this up there, playing those tapes getting them all in, I think they are going overboard in trying to deflect the defense's arguments. Putting this woman up today that they put up that was his girlfriend, this is a woman who was living with and was the girlfriend of Floyd, and she was an addict. Dylan, you don't lose your addiction. Unfortunately, once you become an addict, it's it's sort of like you've got the disease and you're stuck with it. So she's admitting that. And she had to admit, you know, the, the extent to which she was involved in using drugs and that he was an abuser of drugs. And so uh, I realized that the prosecution wanted to get that out, but I don't know that it was helpful to them to call her as the state's witness. Dick, here's another reason.
2: And again, this is law school stuff. But as a prosecution witness, they are only permitted to ask her direct questions. They are not allowed to cross-examine her and challenge her. So they eliminated their own ability to cross-examine her and and go after her in a way that went after her credibility. Uh, They are almost vouching for her credibility by calling her. So um, uh, that is one of those factors also that goes into a decision if you're gonna call a witness or wait.
0: Dick, you would not have used her if you were a prosecutor. You would not have called the girlfriend.
1: Well, I I, I would have been reticent to, to, to do that. I, I don't think that they needed that for the case. As I said to you when we, we began discussing this case, I think they play the tapes. They have uh, all the tapes they need. You play those tapes, put the witnesses up there that sat there and observed it, and you sit down. That is the case, and I really think... It only helps the defense to try to defeat the defense arguments. I think that uh, they've proven their case. I mean, I, I think everybody was convinced this, this man was guilty uh, uh, yesterday. And so uh, the longer you prolong this case now, the more chances you you are taking that you're going to do damage to yourself.
2: Here's another fact. They also have the opportunity for rebuttal. After the defense is closed, if they feel the need to call a witness, they they certainly have that opportunity as well that the defendant does not have. To address Dick's comment about calling the defendant as a witness, as Dick said, it is the critical call in every case. And most defense lawyers will prep their client but wait. If you don't need to call your client, you don't call your client. And it exposes everything. In this case, they may need to call Chauvin to explain his state of mind, to explain what he was thinking at the time he acted, uh, because they may have no other choice.
0: Michael, should there have been a change of venue? I know the defense asked for it at least once, probably twice, and Judge Cahill denied it.
2: Well, change of venue. In a case like this, I think, the smart move, because it will be an appellate issue, Uh, is to have gotten this out of the town where all of this activity took place. And of course, a good judge, and I'm gathering from what I'm learning and watching, is this judge is a good judge, is acutely aware of how the voir dire of the jury went and whether or not in his judgment, and also with an appellate eye that I'm sure he owns, whether or not um, he got a fair jury. I didn't watch the jury selection. Uh, in, in federal court where Dick and I live, um, we get to ask three questions, and that's about it. How you all doing? Fine. Sit down. The judge will take over the voir dire. Uh, I don't know how, how it went in the state case and whether or not the, the lawyers were actively involved in it or not. But certainly, that judge had to firmly believe that at the end of the process, he could sit a fair jury. And if he couldn't, at that time, he could have said, look, this isn't working. So, you know, my assumption is he believes he did, but but he certainly set up, and you want to do it in the town where where things took place. That's the appropriate thing to do. Sometimes it's just not possible.
1: There's one other interesting matter that you ought to know today, Katrina, and I don't know if you saw it, but Mr. Hall, who was the man who uh, was with Floyd at the time that they were in the- uh, The store. store and at, at the time they were in the car, and who has now been identified by the girlfriend as a supplier of drugs, refused to come and testify. His lawyer notified the court that he was going to take the Fifth Amendment, and therefore he can't be called as a witness. In a criminal case, uh, the fact that somebody takes the Fifth Amendment is never uh, exposed to the jury. Uh, in a civil case, you, you can call a witness and make it get the amendment and the jury is uh, instructed that they can consider that. But in a criminal case, that would cause a mistrial. So since he said that he's going to take the Fifth Amendment, he will never be called as a witness. I would be uh, very surprised also if the woman who was in the backseat of the car, who has also been identified as a drug supplier, would probably also do the same thing. But uh, we, we haven't heard that yet. I'd be amazed if she hasn't received a subpoena.
0: So the jury is unaware of the fact that Mr. Hall refuses to testify?
1: That's correct. They will okay, not be told that, and, and he will not be called to the courtroom.
0: Because otherwise it occurs to me that the defense says, you know, George Floyd surrounded by really bad people, and he, he deserved what he got. That's the extrapolation from that.
1: Well, and I would assume that the the jury now that they've heard that he was a drug dealer and that that he was in the uh, store with George and was in the car with him, it's all the more reason to believe that George was uh, receiving drugs while he was in the car and and that this is just going to be uh, part of the defense argument. And there really isn't a way to to, uh, defeat that because uh, you can't make Mr. Hall testify. It's it's not going to happen.
0: Dick, we'll talk to you again next week for another analysis of the week's doings, and if I can round up my husband, I will ask him perhaps to join us again. Thank you, gentlemen. Stay tuned
2: for what the defendant testifies.
0: Yes,
1: <laughs> it'll be an interesting, it'll be an interesting proceeding, and I assume we'll be going for another couple of weeks at the rate they're going today.
2: Be well, Mr.
1: Gregory. Thank you. Good to see you.
0: fired, the former officer Derek Chauvin is facing three murder charges, second-degree unintentional felony murder, third-degree depraved mind murder, and second-degree manslaughter. The other Minneapolis police officers, Kung, Lane, and Howe, are also all charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder and manslaughter. Their days in court will come later this year. We're staying with this trial, and we'll summarize and explain everything with our legal experts on Primetime Crime. for listening to primetime crime the podcast follow us on facebook at primetime crime and on instagram and twitter at primetime crime underscore post your comments and tell us what true crime stories you'd like to hear about subscribe to primetime crime on apple podcasts spotify stitcher and google podcasts thanks a lot